So we began this, uh, this particular study last week. And uh, what's interesting, me, uh, interesting to me about this particular subject, Meet Your King, as in King Jesus, is the fact that Jesus himself uh, predicted the fulfillment of Psalm 133 in John 4 when he speaks of Zion or the mountain of God becoming many mountains. And that's how the term uh, is uh, communicated in Psalm 133. The term for mountain there in that particular psalm is is plural. uh, That God, the place of His throne, uh, is on many mountains or one day will exist on many mountains. And when the Scripture speaks that way, Uh, what it's talking about is that there is a place on earth where God resides in a very special way, where He is present in a very special way. And uh, that place is now His church. The church uh, represents uh, those mountains uh, where uh, the King now resides on earth. And so we have the wonderful privilege of uh, being in that place today and our King Uh, is with us every Sunday that we come together into this place. But the question is, do we know our King? Do we know who He is? Because uh, as we discussed last week, uh, we are called to imitate Him. And that because imitation is the greatest form of adoration or worship. And so we're going to again continue our study of who our King is uh, today. So in preparation for that, let's go ahead and ask the Lord's Blessing on our time, shall we? Father, thank you that we are here again in your son's throne room. He is among us. He is here. Our king is here. And today we endeavor to know our king better so that we can be like our king in the way we live our lives. Father, I would pray that as we learn these things that uh, it would have that effect. That we would apply the things that we're learning to our lives. That we would long to be like our King. In Jesus, our King's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you'll direct your eyes to the top of the handout there and follow along as I read. Jesus was the perfect man. But what kind of man or human was he? What kind of things did he care about? What kind of things did he not care about? Where or with whom did he spend his time? How did he respond or react to others? How did he come across to others? How did people view his words or the way he spoke. Our investigation into the human person of Jesus has as its purpose not simply the gaining of knowledge, but more importantly, its application through imitation. We are commanded in 1 Corinthians 15:1 to imitate our King. The reason? Because imitation is the greatest expression of worship and adoration. Or love. In other words, 
We show our loyalty to Jesus best by our imitation of his humanity. It is in this way also that we imitate and show loyalty to God since through his humanity, Jesus perfectly pictured or explained the character of God. And we began uh, our consideration then of this subject last week. Jesus as the perfect man and uh, what exactly that looked like during his earthly life. And so that again is what we'll continue today, but we'll do so by a quick review of our first points. As a human, King Jesus was careful to receive or act on anything as truth that could not be sufficiently supported in God's court of law. And I want to... tweak a little bit what I gave you last week, really make a correction to the text that I used uh, last week by giving you the the better text, and that is Luke 18. Last week I used its parallel in Matthew, Matthew 19, and uh, I just want to read this to you because I think it uh, it gives more uh, clarity to what I talked about last week. You remember I talked about Jesus, and this is uh, in relation to him being careful to receive anything as truth. Uh, The rich young ruler uh, comes to Jesus and uh, refers to him as good. Well, uh, Matthew 19 doesn't actually carry that piece, even though Jesus responds that way to him. Here you see it uh, in Luke's uh, version, uh, calling him, or the, the ruler, calling Jesus good. Uh, verse 18, Luke 18, 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And you remember I talked about that last week, but it's not exactly in the text there in Matthew 19. Here is actually where we find uh, those specific words. But again, notice what Jesus is doing here. This man calls him good and uh, even though that's true, uh, Jesus uh, is careful to receive that, or at least uh, this is his practice, and he's uh, essentially trying to, to get this man to understand that this is how he should be uh, uh, thinking as well. He, sh- he too needs to be careful not to just call somebody good unless he has the, uh, the, the support, right? Or he has the evidence to support that. And so uh, Jesus presses back on this man. Why do you call me good? And so again, not just receiving things as truth because somebody says that it's true. Uh, We see uh, also Jesus, as it relates to uh, acting on anything as truth, uh, being careful uh, in places like John 5.31, which I Uh, just mentioned last week. That's where Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So again, we're talking about Jesus here. If anybody had uh, uh, the right to bear witness to himself without any other evidence, it was Jesus. And yet Jesus follows God's law or his law in that without sufficient evidence, and as I told you last week, that means evidence that not only agrees with Scripture, but is beyond a reasonable doubt. And uh, what that looks like according to the Scripture, or how that's uh, referred to in the Scripture, is two or three witnesses. 
Without that, it does not stand up in God's court. And that's how we are to be thinking about how we receive or anything that we act on is truth. We're only to do it if we believe that what we're doing or acting on would hold up in God's court. And uh, what that looks like is uh, our Judco meetings. If you think somebody is guilty of something and uh, you're going to act on that, then you better believe that uh, you could bring that person to Judeco and you would, uh, you would have the evidence or you would have evidence sufficient to make your claim or to support your claim. Otherwise, uh, like Jesus, uh, we need to be careful to act. And the example that we uh, looked at last week in support of that was John 8 with the woman caught in adultery. Psalm 19 uh, speaks to this issue. Another text that I did not mention last week, this issue of a presumption, or as I told you last week, the better term, assumption. To believe something is true without the necessary or sufficient evidence makes us guilty of presumption or presumptuous sins. That's at least how it's translated in the English or the sins of assumption, we might say. That term, as I told you, a presumption actually refers to something you believe with evidence. And so it's technically not the right term, but that's what's uh, used here uh, in the English. And so uh, I'll attempt to be consistent with that. Just keep in mind what it means uh, here by presumption or presumptuous sins. Psalm 19, verse 13 is the text uh, or the verse that I'm referring to, that what it's referring to is a belief about something without the evidence to support it. And in this case, you're acting on that, which is why he refers to it here as presumptuous sins. You're accusing somebody of something, you're acting on something that you do not have sufficient evidence to support. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David uh, is the author of this particular psalm. What I find interesting about this is that he is so concerned about that issue. He understood just how Uh, deadly these kinds of sins uh, were and uh, how much the servant of God could be guilty of such sins and so he again prays this prayer keep your servant also from presumptuous sins now he doesn't just uh, pray this he prays this after uh, communicating uh, what he does to us in verses Uh, 7 through 11 about God's word or God's law. And the point that he's making is this. I will be kept from presumptuous sins as long as I operate according to that law. But again, the prayer, keep your servant also from presumptuous sins. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so again, taking that verse, verse 14, in, uh, uh, in its particular context here, the immediate context, which uh, would include then verse 13, or what he's uh, 
just said in verse 13 means that for David, what it means to have words or meditation that is pleasing or acceptable to God is to have words and meditation that does not allow for presumption or assumption. And this again was Jesus. Jesus was careful to receive or to act on anything as truth that could not be sufficiently supported. Jesus was not given to presumption, or again, uh, to be more technically correct, assumption. And uh, if we're going to imitate him, that means that we also need to operate that way. And it takes work. It takes effort to do that. Number two, by way of review, Jesus, as a human didn't care about the evil going on in government, only the evil going on in the covenant community. Didn't care about the evil going on in government, only the evil going on in the covenant community. Several texts we looked at as support for this. Luke 13 was one of those where uh, individuals come to Jesus and say, did you not hear what Pilate did in mixing the blood of the Galileans with our sacrifices? And uh, Jesus has no concern for what's going on in the the government or the political arena or uh, in the country that he was now, uh, or the empire that he was now a part of, the Roman Empire. Instead, he says, if you do not repent, you likewise will perish. Christians are often duped, and uh, this is uh, something that happens quite a bit in this country because we... Uh, we conflate Christianity with Americanism or patriotism. Uh, Christians uh, become duped into thinking that uh, if their government or a particular organization or a person shares uh, some of the values that uh, they share, uh, that we should be working with those particular organizations or governments. We should be working with them and pushing their agendas uh, as a means to accomplishing our own agenda. And that especially if those governments or those organizations or those persons have money or power or influence, that we should be working with them. Even though they're not Christians, they have certain things that uh, line up with uh, what we believe as Christians. And again, this is uh, something that is uh, often uh, a confusing issue for Christians as it relates to the American government because uh, there are a lot of things uh, that are Christian-like in our government. A lot of the things that our government does were uh, established originally on Judeo-Christian values. And so uh, this is where that, uh, that confusion starts. And we begin to think, well, because uh, they do believe this, then uh, we should be uh, working with them or attempting to help them. Because in so doing, uh, we're helping ourselves. There's a term for this. It's called co-belligerence. Co-belligerence. And uh, not only is it unnecessary to advance God's kingdom to do this, uh, but it's explicitly forbidden by God. As a matter of fact, it makes us guilty of idolatry. We see God prohibiting this kind of uh, behavior in places like Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, where he says, you will make no covenant with them, no such agreement to work with them. Hence the reason God said, you shall not intermarry with them. 2 Corinthians 6, a text we've looked at many times, verses 14 through 7, 1. 
uh, where we're told that everything that he says in the, uh, the end there of chapter 6 is really about perfecting holiness. That too is uh, speaking to this issue, co-belligerence. Holiness means intolerance for sinful people. And that includes governments, organizations, schools. This is one that uh, I hear oftentimes is the, well, this particular school, we like this school because it has uh, good Christian values. Now, we're not saying that they're Christian, but we like it better than uh, maybe the public schools. If anything, those schools are worse. I'm not speaking about uh, the, the philosophy of education, their approach to education. These uh, values, they're now espoused in some of these uh, schools and uh, parents are duped into thinking, well, that's a better environment. Actually, it's a worse environment. If anything, it, uh, it convinces the kids that this somehow is an alternate course for living for Jesus. That as long as I espouse certain things or hold to certain things, I'm okay. It confuses again the issue. Rather than being in a place where everything is black and I'm white. And it's very obvious that there's a distinction between me as a Christian and those who are not. And Jesus, again, had no concern for such things. Jesus was not looking for some kind of, uh, as they used to call it, halfway covenant. A position of compromise. Jesus was not concerned with what Caesar was doing. He didn't care about what particular reforms uh, uh, or measures that he, uh, that he was meeting out as part of his government. He was not concerned with who got elected into office. He didn't care about those things because none of those things or none of those people advance God's kingdom. Only Jesus and Jesus' people advance God's kingdom. And we have to be uh, very uh, committed to that end. Otherwise, we will get caught up in this kind of a thing. Thinking, well, this particular organization, they do have certain good things, so maybe we should be supportive in working with them. This happened when I was in seminary in 1995. Uh, it was called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, and there was a document that was signed by all of these evangelicals along with all of these Catholics uh, who were opposed to each other as it related to their soteriology or their salvation, and yet they decided to work together over the issue of abortion because they both agreed that abortion was wrong. And abortion is wrong. But Jesus doesn't say that we can then go work with false Christians. You see how easy it is to slip into this kind of thing? Jesus had no concern for such things, which means we are to have no such concerns for th those things either. Our concern is to be uh, with the covenant community and the covenant community alone. Number three, uh, Jesus, as human, King Jesus had zero tolerance for sin in God's house. We saw this uh, through the cleansing of the temple. He does it twice in John 2 as well as in Matthew 21. Zero tolerance for sin. There it says his disciples were reminded of the Old Testament scripture that says zeal for your house has consumed me. And this again is our king who's here today. This is our king. 
zero tolerance for sin in his house. Which means if we're going to be his people, and if we're going to serve his agenda and his ends, doesn't that mean that we too should have zero tolerance? Number four, and finally from last week, he only, as human, Jesus only fellowshiped with or treated his family, those willing to do God's will. And the emphasis was on do, I told you this last week, not simply listen. Some of you have continued to be in relationship with people using the excuse with people and treating them as family, uh, using the excuse because they're willing to listen. That's, that's never what Scripture says. That's not the qualifier or the, uh, the, the prerequisite. It's not willing to listen, it's willing to do. And we saw that from Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. And this, by the way, is what caused Jesus' parents to think that he was crazy. We saw that in verses 20 and 21. Remember he says, who are my mother and brothers and sisters, but those who do my Father's will? Not listen to it, but do it. Those are the people welcome to God, and those are the only people that should be welcome to us. Let me put it another way. Those are the only people welcome to our King. Those are the only people that Jesus wants to hang out with. You say, well, uh, didn't Jesus hang out with the sinners? Wasn't he actually uh, condemned for that? Yes, and we're going to talk about that. But he didn't hang out with them unless they were willing to do God's will. And when I say we're going to talk about that, we're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. But again, he didn't hang out with people who weren't willing to do God's will. As a matter of fact, the moment that he... Uh, was aware, or they made him aware, that they were unwilling to do God's will, Jesus no longer associated with them. And that brings us then to our new material and our fifth point. As human, King Jesus caused division within families because of his beliefs. And this is, uh, as you can see, very closely tied to this uh, fourth point, or the previous point. That kind of behavior, Jesus, what he believed, what he taught, was bound to cause division, and it did. And Jesus was aware that it was going to do that. Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Verses 49 through 53, I came, notice what Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. They're speaking of his death as baptism, hence the reason Paul can connect baptism, our baptism in Romans 6, to death or Jesus' death. I have a baptism to be baptized with. But before that, again, I came to cast fire on the earth, judgment, and would that it were already kindled. Do you think, verse 51, do you think that I came to give peace on earth? 
How do people think of Jesus? Isn't that how they think of him? Peace, right? He's essentially just a, a hippie who doesn't smoke dope, right? <laughs> Look at Jesus' response. The, the real king, Jesus. No. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather, what's the word there? Division. Again, this is our king who's here today. Our king says, no, I didn't come to give peace. I came rather for division. From now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Division. I came to give division. Kind of makes you think we should uh, change the way we do Christmas, right? Division on earth and goodwill towards men. Division. And again, from an uh, imitation perspective, how are we doing on that? Are you operating like your king? Or is your concern for peace? Peace with God, yes. You say, well, I know that in Luke 2 it says uh, peace with God and goodwill uh, towards men. Uh, Peace with God, yes. Division among men. How are we doing? Oh, I don't want to ruffle the feathers. I want to keep the lines of communication open even though they don't want to hear what you have to say. They're not willing to do what God says. How does our king respond to that? What does our king think about that? You tell me. They don't want to listen. Jesus says, then I don't want to talk to them. I'm not concerned with uh, the fact that they are offended by me or they don't like me. I didn't come to restore the peace. I came to bring division. Again, how are we doing in our imitation of our king? What are we here for? Brother Aaron prayed so wonderfully here today about the prize. And I like that. We need to keep in mind the prize as we talked about several weeks ago. The upward call in Christ Jesus, our king. And that means being like our king. That's how we worship our king. That's how we love our king. That's how we show loyalty to our king. How are we doing? How are we doing? Matthew 10, Jesus sends the disciples out into the neighboring villages, into the the cities or the villages or the towns where their family and friends lived. 
You know the words, verse 5 of chapter 10, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go to your friends and your family. And proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here, it's now. Repent. That's what's implied here if we go back to chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You need to get ready. It's here, and here's what it looks like. Here's what it means. As you go, also heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse leopards, cast out demons. You receive without pain, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In other words, they need to provide for you as you provide for them. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is, notice, worthy in it, i.e., welcomed to God. Find out who is welcome to God and stay there until you depart. As you enter that house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, if they are welcome to God, let your peace come upon that house. Because that person can have peace with God or has peace with God. But if it is not worthy, they're not welcome to God, let your peace return to you. The antithesis of that then is what? Division. Let your peace return to you. I came to cast a fire, you too shall cast a fire on earth. And if anyone will not receive or listen to your words, this is uh, how you gauge or you discern uh, what house is worthy or those that are welcome to God, who receives or listens to your words and who doesn't. If they will not, if they don't listen, they're not worthy, they're not welcome, here's what that means. Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Shake off the dust, kick off the dust or kick the dust off That figure of speech, we've talked about this before, means no more association with those individuals. What Jesus is essentially calling for here by that phrase, shake off the dust, is separation now from those people in those houses or in those towns. Those no longer welcome to God. No more association. And this again, consistent with our King. Because this was Jesus. Jesus says again, I did not come to restore the peace. And so what he's calling his disciples to. Beloved, what he's calling us to as his disciples today is exactly the same thing. To imitate our king. That brings us to number six. As human, King Jesus never questioned God's love for him. Never questioned God's love for him because of what he had to suffer. Because of what he had to suffer. He never questioned God's love for him because of what he had to suffer. Common problem, I would say, today in the church is that... uh, people have uh, trials or things that they go through and as a result of that uh, they begin to question whether or not uh, God loves them because they have this uh, delusional idea that uh, if God loves them then their life will be easy. Yet that's not what the scripture teaches nor uh, was that Jesus' life. His life was 
filled with suffering. As a matter of fact, Isaiah calls him a man of sorrows. A man of sorrows. And yet through all of that sorrow and through all of that suffering, Jesus never questioned God's love for him. John 17. John 17. A perfect example of this. John 17 verses 25 and 26. This is sometimes referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. He speaks these words or prays this prayer just hours before his betrayal by Judas and the rest of the Jews. Just hours before his torture, his humiliation, and ultimately his crucifixion and death. And yet here's how he prays, knowing what's to come. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me, speaking of his disciples. And I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me, notice that, I will continue to make your name known, and the love with which you have loved me may be in Jesus never questioned his father's love for him. Even in the midst of incredible sorrow and eventual suffering. He never, ever, ever questioned his father's love. The coming suffering in no way affected his confidence in God's love. Why? Because here's the proper way, beloved, to think about suffering. Suffering does not indicate a lack of love, but the discipline of a loving father who understands that without such discipline or training, we will not be fit for heaven. Let me say that again. Parents, this is what you need to teach your children. Suffering does not indicate a lack of love. It does not indicate a lack of love, but the discipline of a loving father who understands that without such discipline or training, we will not be fit for heaven. Our souls instead will become corrupted and fit for this world and hell. Jeremiah 17 verse 13 speaks of those whose souls are corrupted and are now only fit for this world and hell. This way it says that their names are written in the earth. That's the last thing you want. You want your name to be written in heaven, not written in this earth. An example from pottery. An example from pottery Uh, Clay, which is used to to make pottery, is uh, very soft and porous. It doesn't uh, do a very good job of holding uh, water. Only when it is heated in the kiln does it transform into something watertight and strong. Only when it is heated in the kiln, the fires of the kiln, does it 
transform into something watertight and strong. If that clay, however, cracks in the fire, it is discarded and considered to be useless. In the same way, we must go through the fires of trials and training to become vessels strong enough to hold the holiness and obedience God requires to get to heaven. If we crack, we too will be discarded as useless. Jesus speaks of this in Luke chapter 14. If the salt loses its saltiness. The good news is we have God's power to get through those trials if we will submit and accept them. Accept the fires of the trial and the training as what is needed and what a loving Father gives to us to make us fit for heaven. Paul is uh, my inspiration for speaking about our lives as a clay pottery because he speaks this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 7 but we have this treasure in jars of clay we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us we are afflicted in every way but not crushed the trials the fires of the trials have not cracked or crushed us Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. But notice the result. So that the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our bodies. So how do we do it? How do we get this kind of power to make it through the trials? Well, I think verse 13 gives us the answer Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. We submit. Even in the midst of trials, we submit to the trial and we continue to be faithful. And that's the good news. If we'll do that, we'll make it through. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says that God is faithful. That He will not give us the kind of trial that will break us if we'll submit to it. Most of the time, and some of you I've talked with you about this, most of the time the things that break us have nothing to do with the actual trial uh, that we're in. It has everything to do with what we, uh, we add on top of that, mentally, or even through our actions. And I've talked with some of you about this uh, visually uh, by way of a pie chart. You say, well, how much of that, uh, that pie... How big of a slice is the actual trial and how much of it is exacerbated by what you've added to it mentally through complaining, through not accepting but resisting it in your heart. You don't want to go through it. Maybe actions that now make it worse than what it was before. Right? See, God promises that whatever He gives to us, we can get through. But what He doesn't promise is what we add to it. You say, God's given me a trial that I can't handle. Uh, It's obvious that I can't handle it. Really, is it the trial or what you've added to it? Is it his affliction or your self-affliction that's causing the problem? Going back to our example here as it relates to the person of Jesus, we see that this in Hebrews chapter uh, 5. He too needed to become a vessel able to hold both holiness and obedience, and that happened only uh, through the fires of trial or suffering. We're told that in verses 5 
excuse me, verses 7 through 9 of chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Notice here Jesus crying out to God. The context here is suffering. Even Jesus suffered, and when he suffered, it felt the same way that it does to us. Notice verse 8, he tells us, why this took place, although he was a son. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Obey him in what way? In the way they suffer. In following his example. Hebrews chapter 12, as it relates to the trials and the things that we suffer in this life being the discipline and the training that comes from a loving Father who is just attempting to make us fit for heaven. Hebrews 12, 5 through 14, and you have, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. How do we strive Uh, Then for peace with God and holiness. How do we do that? By enduring the trials. By having the right attitude in the trials. By accepting the trials. He's just told us that's the means to getting there. To being made fit for heaven. Vessels that can now hold holiness and obedience in the right way. Hence uh, what we're told in Proverbs 23, 12-14. As it relates to parents and their children. This is why you discipline your, par- or your, your children, uh, parents. Uh, Proverbs 23. To make them fit for heaven. Vessels able to hold obedience and holiness. Do not withhold therefore discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. From death. This isn't for their destruction, right? This is uh, something that is good. It's constructive, not destructive. It's the means by which we uh, save their soul from death. Uh, Notice both forms of discipline or training uh, are mentioned here, positive and negative. Do not withhold discipline from a child. Discipline, I think by that he, uh, the word there is just training, 
And then he brings up the second piece, which is what we might call the negative piece, the striking with the rod portion of discipline. But both really are mentioned here, both the positive and the negative. Sometimes we distinguish between them as discipleship and discipline. But both are forms of discipline and both are forms of training. And both are needed if those children are to be made strong. Neither can be neglected. If we do, we are leaving our children weak and vulnerable to corruption. Hence the reason we're told what we're told in uh, Proverbs 19, verse 18. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Hope in what? Discipline, the training, both positive and negative. Discipline, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. And so what is assumed here is that if you don't discipline him, then you're desiring that he die because that's where it'll end up because he will now be weak and vulnerable to the corruption of the world. Moving on then to ver- or excuse me point number 7 as it relates to our king as a human king Jesus loved i.e. was loyal to We know that love equals loyalty, so loved or was loyal to God and His people more than anything else. Love or was loyal to God and His people more than anything else. We hear a lot about love and uh, love's association with uh, Christianity and uh, there is truth to that. For Jesus, it was all about love. It was all about love. But love meant loyalty. Loyalty to the right things, or more specifically, loyalty to the right people. Hence what we read in places like John 5 as it relates to his father, John 5, verse 19. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Jesus says, I'm not a maverick. It's not my agenda. I'm loyal to the Father above everything else, including self. This is why Jesus could say to uh, his disciples, uh, if you have seen me, then you have seen the Father. Because all I do is what the Father does. That's my loyalty to him. That's my love for him. Verse uh, 30, in relation to judgment, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. I can do nothing On my own. You see, that needs to be our lives, beloved. That needs to be how we think of ourselves in relation to our King. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. You see, that goes back to that first point. This is what makes us careful people. The only judgment I have is Jesus' judgment. And I know that Jesus' judgment is only according to the facts. And that fact, or those facts need to be sufficient enough to make the judgment. Otherwise, I don't judge. 
careful in that respect. I can do nothing. I only do what I see my king doing. That's imitation. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Shows just how far Jesus was willing to go in his loyalty to God. His love for God. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, meaning taken back up to heaven, which means going through the the river of death, passing through that river. When the days drew near for that to take place, what does it say? He set his face to go up to Jerusalem. Older translations used to say it this way. uh, He made his face like flint. Both of those uh, phrases, he set his face or made his face like flint, means that, uh, uh, that he... Uh, steeled his will, uh, that he fully committed himself to the course that was set before him, irrespective of the consequences. And in this case, going to Jerusalem meant death. He knew that. But he was committed to that end. This was his loyalty to God. This is his love or was his love for God during his earthly life. He loved God more than anything else. And he loved God's people as well. Luke chapter, or excuse me, John chapter 13 says this as it relates to God's people. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And again, we could just replace that word love with that word loyalty. He was loyal to them. He was loyal to them above anything and everything else. And I use the word thing versus one, anyone, because people are devoted to all kinds of Things, which means things other than just human things. People are devoted or love or are loyal to sports, their careers, all kinds of things. But if we're going to be like our king, then that means our loyalty is to two things and two things alone. We are loyal to God and to his people in the same way that Jesus was loyal. And that loyalty meant in both cases to death. He loved them to the end. He was loyal to them to the end. That's what's being inferred here. He was loyal to them unto death. And that's confirmed for us in places like Philippians chapter 2 where we're told to have the same attitude as that of our Savior or our King that our mindset is to be His mindset in all things. And here's what we're told about that. Philippians chapter 2 Uh, verses uh, 5 and following. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, uh, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, uh, he didn't say, because I'm God, I'll do whatever I want. But emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. What did he do? Being found in that subordinate form. He humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
And again, uh, all of this is given as the example for us. Hence again the reason in verse 5 Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves. In other words, this is how you're to think about things. By the way guys, uh, if you don't have anything that you're willing to die for, then you haven't truly lived. You truly don't know what it is to live for Jesus if you're not first willing to die for Jesus. And that's what Paul says we need to be. Those types of people that are willing to die for our king and for his people. Loyal to the end. That's our king. Loyal to the end. He is our example. He is our example. Which means that Christianity, like Jesus, is also all about love. It is all about love. So the next time somebody says to you, God is love, and it's about love, you say, exactly, it is about love. But love means loyalty. Not some emotionally charged thing that changes like the wind. Plugging this all into texts like Matthew twenty two thirty seven through 39 the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind and soul. You shall be loyal to the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind and soul, every fiber of your being. What is Jesus saying there by that? Loyal to Him above everything, anything else. John 13, 34 and 35. A new command that I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. Be loyal to one another as I have been loyal to you. And how loyal was Jesus to us? How loyal has our King been to us? He was loyal to the point of death. Hence the reason in chapter 15 verses 12 and 13 he says, No greater love has one man for another than this, that he, that he is willing to lay his life down. This idea of love equaling loyalty, and as it relates to God, that means obeying His commands. First John chapter five verses one and two say this is how we love God, and equally how we love our brothers and sisters. This is how we show loyalty to them. It says there explicitly by obeying His commands. This is why when people say, well, a so-and-so brother or sister, uh, so-and-so is in sin or whatever, and we just need to love them. A- absolutely, we need to love them. But what does love, loving them look like? Obeying God's commands. Doing what God says we need to do with them. That's loving them. The most loving thing you can do is tell people what God says. Even the hard things that they don't want to hear. You see, love is not defined by them, beloved. So when people say, well, that doesn't sound like love to me. They're not the author of words. God is. And that might be worth educating people on, by the way. When you're talking to people and they say, that's not loving. I'm sorry, but God is the author of words. He used words to create the universe. God is the author of words. And God says, love is telling you what God says. You don't get to define it. And just because you wear a rainbow banner that says love is love is love doesn't mean it changes. John 21. John 21. This is after Jesus' death. 
and uh, resurrection just before his ascension uh, back to heaven. He meets uh, with uh, Peter on the beach. And Peter has, uh, by this point, chapter 18 records this for us, denied Jesus three times. And we read these words, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, then feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he, meaning Peter, was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Three times, three times Jesus asked him that question, Peter, do you love me? Three times because Peter denied him three times. Peter knew what he was talking about. Peter knew what he was getting at. Peter, are you loyal to me? Because what did Peter show or what did Peter demonstrate by his denials? That at that particular time and in that particular scenario or circumstance, he was not loyal to Jesus which means that both Jesus and Peter understood love equals loyalty. And so he says, Peter, if you are, do what I called you to do. Go back and be the shepherd to my sheep that I've called you to be. Peter, the next time you do this, I know that you will be loyal. You will ultimately be loyal to the point of death. You will die for me. You will follow me. The question Beloved, it is for us, do we love Jesus that way? If he were to ask you that question, how would your life respond? Not your lips. Talk is cheap. How would your life respond? Do you love me? King Jesus is asking that question. Are you loyal to him? especially when the going gets tough. Will you be loyal to him? That brings us then to our final point. As a human, King Jesus, number eight, suffered for righteousness despite, and I think that's the the word you have there to fill in, suffered for righteousness despite his feelings and fear. Despite his feelings and fear. fear another problem another area of confusion for people seems to be that when their feelings are telling them something different or they are afraid that they now have some kind of excuse to no longer do the right thing and that Jesus had both of those things he had feelings that were contrary to what he was about to do and he had great fear 
And yet he was willing to go forward and to suffer anyway. To continue to be loyal to his father and loyal to his people. Luke chapter 22 gives us a pretty clear window into this a part of Jesus' life or his person or his human person in this way that he was indeed fearful that he did have feelings that were contrary. Verse 39, And he came out and went, and as his custom, and was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Like I said, this gives us a pretty clear picture into the heart of Jesus and uh, his humanity. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. He did not feel like going to the cross. He was afraid. And it was hard. It was hard. We're told again in that very next verse. It took an angel from heaven to come and to strengthen him because it was so difficult. It was hard to do the right thing. But look again at what he says. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, this is, this is what it means to set your face like flint. It doesn't matter what's going on inside of you. Fear is not an excuse. Feelings to the contrary are not an excuse. The agony that he felt, verse 44, caused him to pray more earnestly in his sweat, again like drops of blood falling to the ground. Hebrews 12 says that we have not suffered to the point of shedding our blood, and most especially not in this way, Doctors say to sweat blood takes a great amount of anxiety and stress. It happens rarely to individuals because rarely are individuals ever in a situation that would cause that kind of anxiety or anxiety and stress to that level. And our king endured all of it and he stayed the course. He was willing to suffer for righteousness despite, despite how he felt despite the fear. When uh, I was in the hospital, and I don't know why, but I had, uh, they told me some things, and all of a sudden my hands were shaking, and I couldn't stop my hands from shaking. And I asked the nurse if she could give me something because of the fear that I felt. And our Lord, He knows that fear. He knows the fear of 
pain and suffering. He knew what was going to come. He was intimately acquainted with that as God. And yet he was willing to go forward. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 through 18 tell us that uh, he was tempted. This included even temptation. Our Lord, our King was tempted. Told for surely it is not the angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful an understanding, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sons, for the sins rather of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted. You see, temptation is a form of suffering, beloved. It's suffering for righteousness when we don't give in. And Jesus suffered that as well. And because of that, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And what I believe that the author is getting at here when he says he's able to help is not his atoning work, not that kind of help, but the help that comes from understanding what it is to be in that place. Jesus knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to be tempted and to not give in to that, but instead to suffer, to submit his will to a father in doing what is just. To submit himself in that way through those temptations and to not give in. Hebrews chapter 4 speaks of it again at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. He's been there. He knows. He understands with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. In every respect. What does that tell you? Well, there's nothing that you've gone through or there's no temptation that you've experienced that Jesus hasn't experienced. All of it in his life. But no doubt when he got to the age of uh, puberty, he started to have desire for women. It's a natural thing. And there would have been temptations that would have come with that. As he would see a beautiful woman and he knew what his father had called him to, which is a life of celibacy. And no doubt that temptation would have been there constantly. And yet he was willing to suffer for the sake of righteousness by not giving in to the temptation, to those feelings, or even again to fear. Again, those things, feelings and fear, are not an excuse to give up or back out of doing the right thing. By the way, courage. This is another area where people get confused as it relates to uh, fear. Courage is not the opposite of fear. Courage is not the opposite of fear. Courage is the term we use for those who remain loyal in the face of fear. Every person who's uh, ever been called courage, uh, courageous or brave or a hero is a person who in the midst of that particular situation uh, felt an immense amount of fear. But they did the right thing anyway. They remained loyal in the face of that fear. By the way, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says that when we are willing to suffer for righteousness, when we will indeed endure the pain that comes from that, and that includes the fear, that includes feelings of temptation, whatever it is, that when we do that, we show that we are done with sin. And this really goes back to uh, that idea of being made vessels that are able to hold holiness and obedience 
1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. It's necessary. It's necessary in a good way. Just as an athlete knows that uh, the pain that uh, he endures is good, no pain, no gain. It's a positive, not a negative. We're to have the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh, meaning conquered that, endured that suffering, whether it's temptation, fear, whatever it is, whoever has done that has ceased from sin. Isn't that who you want to be? The person who says, I've ceased from sin, I'm now fit for heaven. Well, this is the way, according to Peter, that we get there. It's through the path of suffering. Not around it, but through it. That kind of a person has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in their flesh. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. An easy way then to spot someone who is living for self. They stop being obedient the moment such obedience causes them to suffer or puts their life in danger. Parents, another good lesson for your children. Something to discuss with them. If, If their obedience is only during the good times, then that tells you as well as them what they're still living for. You're not truly again living for Jesus until you are willing to suffer and ultimately die for Jesus. Well, that brings us then to our closing contemplation. And I just want to change that, not from, uh, or uh, to challenge rather than contemplation, a closing a challenge. Here's what I'd like you to do this week, beloved. On a separate sheet of paper, I want you to write out these eight points. And the reason I'm having you write them out is because there's something to retention and writing, meaning when you write things, you're more likely to retain them in your brain. And so I want you to write them out, these eight points, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to commit to reading and thinking about them before you read your Bible. So write them out, and if you have a a paper Bible or a Bible like mine versus the electro, uh, electronic kind. Uh, you can put it in your Bible and just pull that out. And I want you to read through those and think about them. Because remember the goal of all of this is to know our King and to imitate our King. Well, with that, let's pray. Father, thank you that we've had time here to reflect on our most worthy King King Jesus, thank you so much, King Jesus, for what you've done for us. Father, thank you so much for sending him and making him our king. I pray that through what we learn that we would live lives now uh, with as part of this goal to get to heaven, uh, really the means to getting there. The means to getting there is imitating our king and so we would live with that as our motivation Jesus, King Jesus, being like Him in this life. Make it so, we pray, in the name of our wonderful and worthy King, the Lord Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.